morning to all of you. It's our kind of privilege this morning to take you into sacred scripture. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount. We are in one of the Beatitudes again this morning. We've been going through them. Beatitudes are a series of statements that Jesus Christ spoke (coughs) at the beginning of his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just going to read verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I want you to picture a trucker who's driving the 84 and he's getting tired. So he pulls into a truck stop in Walcott. He goes into the restaurant there and he sits down to a steak. Nice, big, juicy steak. The man has a big appetite. And as the steak is delivered on a nice, big, piping hot plate, six gang guys come in on motorcycles and they take the steak from him and they take the plate and they simply cut it into six pieces and they all devour the six pieces. Meanwhile, he kind of hangs his head a little bit, not saying anything, not doing anything while he's there. And the men start to tease him. What a wuss you are. What are you? You must be scared of us. And so the man eventually makes his way out of the restaurant, goes over to his truck, starts it up, grinds it into gear, and makes his way over towards six motorcycles that are gleamingly parked next to each other. Now he has a choice. He could either run them over, which is what actually happened in life, and it's a true story, or he could simply leave a Bible on one of the guy's gas tanks. Which one is mercy and which one is judgment? (coughs) Mercy is the power to render compassion to those deserving your judgment. And as a result, mercy is more powerful than judgment. The apostle puts it this way in the book of James, mercy triumphs over judgment. He also says, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy is better than judgment. This is what our Lord is talking about here in verse 6. But to those who have no mercy, they will one day get judged. You might remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus is a poor beggar and sits outside this rich man's gate. He's so poor and he's so sick and he's so weak, he can't even keep the dogs from coming around and licking the sores on his body. If somebody walks by, he holds out his cup and maybe he gets a a pittance for a bite of bread for the day. The story goes on. The Lord tells it in Luke chapter 16 that they both die, Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man goes to Hades, and he's in torment. He's being judged. Whereas Lazarus is brought into Abraham's bosom to a place of complete mercy. And the man, the rich man who is in agony, cries out to Abraham for a tip of drip of water on his tongue just to alleviate some of the suffering, but Abraham has to answer him, no, I cannot do that. There's a chasm between the two of us. It's fixed. We cannot cross over you to us or us to you. Mercy is great. Mercy is wonderful. It doesn't mean that there's no such thing as judgment, but that there is absolutely a guarantee of mercy in this world and in this life and even eternally. I want to 
try to take you through this parable this morning as we have some time before we take the Lord's table together and celebrate it together as believers. I want to make a couple of points along the way, and I hope that as I do, that this very short, brief passage of Scripture opens itself up to you this morning in such a way you realize that this is actually an ocean. This is a swimmable, divable, jump right in, swim in it ocean. Let me begin this way. True religion is always merciful. False religion is always cruel. God weaves fig leaves for Adam and Eve. He doesn't judge them. God in the Old Testament designs a mercy seat where people can be forgiven. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is described in the book of 1 John as that mercy seat. He is our seat of mercy. <clears throat> On the other hand, Satan and his dominion and hosts offer you false fruit, false promises, quick gratification, and long-term misery. But not true religion. True religion is this, Ephesians 2.4, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. We Christians do not get the punishment we deserve because Jesus Christ, who deserved everything, graciously demanded nothing. Being Christ's disciple is about being merciful to people who deserve judgment and ourselves having the attitude of graciously demanding nothing from people in this life. Now, I think because we're all churched people, and we kind of grow up in a culture that's been salted by the Christian ethos, we all kind of have this idea that mercy is a wonderful thing. Mercy is a wonderful thing. On the surface, we might even imagine everybody thinks that mercy is great, but it's not so. Since only the broken and the desperate and the poor in spirit cry for mercy, reality is, is that mercy in its actual form is looked down upon. Among the Romans, mercy was called a, quote, disease of the soul. It was a supreme sign of weakness. If you would do, ask a good Roman citizen, do you want mercy, they would take that as an insult. It's kind of like, do you remember when you were little kids? And you would take your sister and you would hold her arm behind her back and twist it up until she would cry, mercy or uncle? Was mercy a good thing? Do you think she liked mercy at that point? I don't think so. It's kind of the worldly idea of I've got you under my foot and therefore you're weak and you're helpless and I could stomp on you. So now I'll show you mercy. But in fact, it's actually kind of a form of torture. Even today, even among Christians, you have many Many who think this way about mercy. For example, they despise people in their own country who are on government welfare. They look down their pious noses at them, for they are receiving mercy. And in that you see, even still today, when somebody is really in a sad state of life or in a great destitute situation of life, Sometimes even Christians can look down their noses at them and despise the fact that they're receiving mercy. We of all people ought to have mercy for everyone just based on our knowledge of the fall. 
we understand everyone is so deeply affected by sin that the reality is is that every single person deserves pity for what they are. They are pitiable. They are so needy. (coughs) We would understand mercy is what motivated God to send His Son into the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him should have eternal life and not come into judgment. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The world, they're referring not to each and every person, but to man in his pitiable, sinful, weak, helpless condition. We understand that actually mercy is at the heart of the very gospel we preach that we are to believe on for the salvation of our own souls. Mercy is incredibly important to us. And even when God does judge, there is always in this world a silver lining within it. Some of you are probably familiar with the book of Lamentations. It's kind of hidden away in the Old Testament, but it's the saddest book in the whole Bible. It's five chapters of nonstop tears, except for one little section, really. It's about God bringing about judgment on Israelites, and particularly Jerusalem. And the judgments are so severe. But right in the middle of it, right in the middle of the book, is this. Jeremiah, the writer, says this. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's mercies indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So even when there's judgment being poured out by God, there's always mercy coming along with it. It's just the heart of our Father in heaven. Shakespeare said that mercy was twice blessed. First, to the one who gives. It makes the one who gives mercy noble and good. And then secondly, to the one who receives it for relieves suffering. The Lord Jesus' ministry to Israel was rich in mercy. He healed lepers. He raised children back from the dead. He cast demons out. He restored sight to the blind. He taught life-altering truth that brought the light of heaven into people's lives so that they weren't blind anymore. All to show the heart of God is mercy. And, and it's interesting because as you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll never come across a more undeserving people than Israel who didn't deserve mercy. For 1,400 years they had been a stiff-necked people, and yet God sent His own Son. Psalm 145, verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. Everything that He does throughout this world, and even throughout this universe, always has mercy within it. It's almost like He doesn't know how to work without mercy. Because it is such his heart. So even where there will be judgments in the end of times, there will be mercies along with them. Everything that God does in this world is always tainted with a silver lining of mercy. Everything that we actually have as human beings is a result of mercy. All the benefits that we have on every day, cars that go, bodies that function, food that tastes yummy, TV shows that are fun to watch, Everything is good and sanctified by the Word of God and prayer. God is so kind and merciful. He just seems to give and give and and give and and give. 
for most of us, we have far more days of health in our life than we do of sickness. Far more. God is so good. He's so merciful. Yet, you see, you come across times when Jesus really railed on the religious leaders of Israel. At one point he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Because it is incumbent upon religious leaders of true religion to provide mercy for everyone, for as many people who can take it, so that their suffering in this life might be alleviated, so that there isn't in true religion an extension of that which is permeated throughout all the false, all the cruelty that goes along with false religion of any form and false theology, false philosophy of any form, which are governed by the gods of this world, manipulating the subjects, the human beings, whether they be wonderful and cool or whether they be lowly and small, into contortions of cruelty throughout their life. But we who have come under Jesus Christ have come under a God of mercy. And even if we were strong enough to undo his plan, which we aren't, even if we were, he would still lavish mercy upon us. For we have come under his banner. It's the branch on the apple tree that has the most apples on it that dips the lowest so that most people can then partake of that branch's fruit. There's an old Malaysian proverb that says, the fuller the ear of rice, the lower it bends. It's just that when there's an abundance of fruit, it goes down and it spreads to as many as it can. So as we are going to look at this beatitude this morning, I want us to sink ourselves into it, bathe in it, really take it in. May God himself help you this morning to come away with a heart of mercy and deep, deep gratitude. Okay, for those of you who like to take notes, we're breaking it into the same three sections as we're doing with all the other Beatitudes. The three are the condition, the group, and the promise. This morning, we're going to start with the promise first. It is at the end of verse 7, Join me there, please. Look there, verse 7, if you have a Bible. For they shall receive mercy. Reading it all together, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's the promise at the end. They shall receive mercy. So there, you see, like all the other Beatitudes, this contains a promise. Shall receive mercy. But this promise is unlike any other of the promises in all The Beatitudes, Jesus changes things up in this one. Every other promise is a future exaltation. Look back at verse 3. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's really good. Better to be there than the other place, right? That's an exaltation. Verse 4, for they shall be comforted. Hey, that's a lot better than the alternative. Verse 5, inheriting the earth. Verse 6, shall be satisfied. All of those are exaltations, promises of exaltation, of really great things happening. But instead, the promise in verse 7 is this. In the future, you are still going to be very, very needy 
and still needing mercy. That's why he says, they shall receive mercy. (laughs) Who wants that? We want strength. We want beauty. We want success. We want money. We're not looking forward to the future and saying, what I really want in the future is (laughs) mercy. I want to be really weak and pitiful in the future. And yet, that's what Jesus is promising. Mercy. Hey, you can prove this paradox to yourself. Just ask maybe some friends at work or somebody in your family. Hey, let me ask you, would you like to have the kingdom of heaven? Great, that's verse 3. Would you like to be comforted? That's great. Yeah, that's verse 4. Hey, would you like to inherit the earth? Sure. Would you like to be satisfied in life? Verse 6, yeah. And then ask them, hey, in the future, would you like to get mercy? And you'll probably see their face drop down. That's not something that they're actually thinking about, is it? So this one really kind of goes a different way. In fact, if you have somebody who's kind of tuned in, you say, hey, you're, you're a person who in the future, you're going to really need mercy. They're probably going to take it as an offense. Why are you insulting me? And so as a result, I would say that this is probably the most ignored beatitude of all of them. The problem is the promise. It isn't a really great promise as we judge promises, is it? Is that what you want? You want to be a perpetually needy person, always needing mercy, always pitiful? Is that what you want? But listen, actually this is a great, great beatitude. So deserving of our long meditation and our faith in it. Because what it's telling us is that God's mercy for spiritual beggars, as we learned back in verse 3, poor in spirit, God's mercy for those who have stumbled and sinned is this, that when they stumble and sin in the future, and when they do it over and over and over and over and over again, they shall receive mercy. What a promise. What a promise. Let me illustrate how great this, this uh, beatitude is with comparing it a little bit more specifically with the world's religions. Mercy is universally known in world religions. Mercy is the act of giving money or alms to the poor. If you do that, you receive rewards, and that is the inducement for being merciful. Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, and certain forms of Christianity all stress the importance of giving alms. In orthodoxy, that would be like Russian orthodoxy, Greek orthodoxy, Armenian orthodoxy. The giving of alms to the poor, if it's done in the name of a dead person, earns both the giver of the alm and the deceased person reduced time in purgatory. There's no way to validate that, however. They just teach that. So there's an inducement then to give some of your money to poor people. I don't even know if you... Do you know the story of Tetzel and the indulgences? It's great. There was a man named Johann Tetzel. He was commissioned by the Pope back in the 1500s 
to go around and collect money in order to build St. Peter's Basilica. And they needed a ton of money. You've probably seen St. Peter's Basilica. It's huge. It's massive. And the amount of money that it would take to build such, a, such an edifice is just beyond. It's Michelangelo's, right? His masterpiece and so on like that. So Tetzel was able to go out and, and write a document. If you would give a certain amount of money, you could have a certain number of your sins remitted by the Pope. Now, Tetzel would sign it in the name of the Pope, but he was authorized by the Pope to do this. So Tetzel would travel from town to town, and he would have a big money chest with him. And when people would come out, you know, they're burdened with their sins, and they're also trying to get their relatives who have already died and are supposedly in purgatory out of purgatory. So there's all this inducement in the religious culture of that day to go to Tetzel, sign up, give him money, and depending on how much money he would decide, along with some advisors who came with him, as to how much sin could be remitted. Well, one day, this notorious robber and several of his men came, and he was broadly known. He was an extremely successful robber and therefore extremely wealthy. And he went to Tetzel and he asked him, how much would it cost me to have an indulgence written that would forgive all my past sins. Tetzel and his advisors got together, and they thought about this. This would not be, this would be a haul for the Pope. They came up with a number. The man looked at it, nodded to his advisors, and said, yes, make it so. And they went back to where they held their money, and they brought all that money, and they dumped it in the chest. Then the man asked, Tetzel, what would it cost me to get all my current sins forgiven that I'm committing at this time? They came up with another number. This time it was less, but they went and they got the money. Tetzel agreed, and they put it in Tetzel's chest. Finally, the man had an idea. What would it cost me to have all my future sins forgiven so that after I die, I go instantly to heaven? And Tetzel and his advisors got together, and they came up with an astronomical sum of money in fact, they told the man, everything you own, because they were thinking of the story of rich man uh, who came to Jesus, and how much do I have to, you know, how do I get to heaven? And so the man nodded to his advisors. They went and they got the rest of the money that the man had, a huge haul. They brought it and they dumped it into Tetzel's wagon. And then the man and his advisors pulled out knives on Tetzel and his advisors and said, now give us back all the money. You'll get it in a minute. You'll get it in a minute. <clears throat> in other words, all of his sins were forgiven. Hey, even in Judaism today, rabbis legislate mercy. Especially back in that earlier day when Jesus was living and the people, when they would have heard this, this little beatitude here, they would have automatically thought, well, blessed are the merciful, that's the guy who goes out and gives money to the poor. So the rabbis, kind of in a legislative way, had some rules about it. You could only give a beggar a small coin or two, but you could give a substantial gift if the person that you were giving it to had the means to eventually pay you back. See, the reason that, the re that beggars are in such a miserable condition in this life is because it's evidence of God's judgment on them. God is judging them for some pro probably hidden personal sin in their life, and if you give them too much money, they will continue to go on and do those sins. So you don't want to give them too much money. You don't want to give the poor too much money. You only want to give it to people who can end up paying you back. You might remember this is the reason why Jesus excoriated the 
rabbinic council that said you don't have to care for your parents in old age. You can just give the money to the temple, which, by the way, was a savings of money for the young person, and the parents ended up suffering in their later years. This is kind of the idea, then, behind a, a, a maybe a, a pharisaical kind of Judaism. See, but if the world's religions are correct, and showing mercy, then, is about getting reward, then Jesus is wrong. He ought to have said this in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive a reward. But he didn't. He said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's a different thing. I read a Muslim website that says the more one gives mercy, the more God helps the person. So there you go. Giving mercy is the third of five pillars of Islam. And they have it specified as 2.5% of your annual income. But when mercy is taken to mean the, the giving of property and money, this beatitude falls apart. Because in this scheme now, the one who gives mercy is owed mercy. If you give mercy, you get mercy. But mercy, by definition, can't be deserved. No one can merit mercy. You can't merit mercy. And Jesus' words then take us in a different direction. Mercy is not the action of giving money. Mercy is the power of giving compassion to someone who actually deserves your judgment. Mercy is the action of giving mercy rather than giving judgment to someone who has sinned against you. How does a person get this way? See, now the beatitude kind of makes sense. Those who give mercy, they receive what they can't earn, mercy. They're, they're not out there giving judgment, but they're giving mercy to people who deserve their judgment. See, if you go back to verse 6, it kind of makes sense here. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and as a result, how can they harshly judge others and be looking at other people and saying, how can I judge this person to some strict standard of righteousness? No, they want to show mercy because as a result of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, they are aware all too well of their own unrighteousness. So if they gave judgment rather than mercy, they wouldn't be the meek person described in verse 5. They wouldn't be those who <coughs> mourn over their own sins in verse 4. They certainly wouldn't be those who are poor in spirit according to verse 3. See, the merciful person can't hold people in self-righteous scales of retaliation and anger and plotted revenge and how wonderful it might feel if that could inflict social pain on that individual, physical pain on that individual. All of this, if it was the truth about what we are to become as Christians, would only develop in us a self-righteousness that is in and of itself the very opposite of what verse 6 speaks of, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This would simply be hungering and thirsting for vengeance, hungering and thirsting for my pound of flesh. And all that would do is develop within all of us a self-righteousness, the very opposite of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, Jesus is speaking of a people who adopt a merciful attitude toward men and women in general. And in specific, 
contrary to what their flesh wants to hold them in its cruelty. They take those who have wounded them and harmed them and sinned against them and figure out how to relate to that person in mercy. And then while we're on this point about the promise here at the end of verse 7, let me just make one last observation. Please notice, at the end of verse 7, Jesus says, they shall receive mercy. I'd like you to notice that that is passive. They don't, make, they don't obtain mercy by their own actions. It comes from the outside of them. They are passive, and therefore they receive mercy. So please understand that Jesus is promising here a mercy from outside of yourself, and ultimately then it has to be from God. The text literally says, they shall be mercified. Now, God might use merciful men to show you mercy. He just as likely might show you mercy through very sinful and selfish men, just in order to show you how thoroughly complete His power is. But by this verse, you are not taught to expect mercy from men. That's critical to understanding this passage. You are not taught here to expect mercy from men. Why? Because you should expect harshness from men. That's what makes them deserving of your mercy. But be certain of this. If you are merciful to them, you shall receive mercy. Now, this beatitude, which used to look so tame and so calm and so sweet on the outside. It was like a Valentine's Day chocolate before we started to look into it, wasn't it? It's wonderful. But the more you look at it, the less tame it is, the wilder it is. This thing's got teeth to it. We should expect in this world to be harshly treated by men because that's the only thing that's going to make them actually needing our mercy. You should expect to be mistreated. You should expect to have hardship and then to be called on by the Holy Spirit in your relationship with Christ to show them mercy the exact opposite of what you want to do, the exact opposite of what's in you naturally. So this isn't really a chocolate after all. It's kind of like biting into a habanero. For those of you who had ever done that, not me. But it's got spice to it. It's got bite to it. So this is the first kind of paradox here that we come into receiving mercy. It's not about receiving a reward. It's about receiving mercy, forgiving mercy. <clears throat> all right. Let's move on from the promise to our second point, the condition. And all along, we've talked about the condition of the beatitude being the word blessed. Blessed are, right at the very beginning of the verse, makarios, blessed. And that's the condition. And you would remember that when we talk about the word blessed, I kind of gave it the definition of spiritually successful. And we've looked at that all through the weeks and kind of, you know, examined it. But just think of it that way. Just think of a blessed person is a spiritually successful person. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to strip out the middle of the beatitude. I want you to strip out the part that says the merciful. And I just want you to read the beginning and the end. And this is how it says replacing the word blessed with the word spiritually successful. And this is how it now reads. Spiritually successful are 
those who shall receive mercy. But that's a problem. Spiritually successful people don't need mercy. They're successful, spiritually speaking. This is what it should read. It should read, spiritually desperate, miserable people shall receive mercy. Now that makes sense. Not the blessed shall receive mercy. No, the blessed are the ones who have moved beyond needing mercy, right? I mean, that's like a temporary place to be, but you don't want to stay there, right? Interesting. How to resolve this paradox then? Well, verse 7 really relies on the faith of the blessed person. And this is what it is. A person who has faith reads this verse and says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Therefore, I shall receive mercy. Very simple, isn't it? Faith just says, then I shall receive mercy. The person who shall receive mercy then must believe that life for them right now is exactly as God would have it to be. No matter how bad life is for you right now, faith in God would tell you this is exactly how God would have it. We're getting some teeth again in this beatitude. This is then a faith that is contrary to what you see in your life or feel in your life. This is a faith that says, I shall receive mercy. Fantastic faith. Are you poor? This beatitude says you shall receive mercy. Are you sinful? This beatitude tells you you shall receive mercy. Are you sick with cancer, you shall receive mercy. Have men betrayed you like Joseph's brothers, you shall receive mercy. In fact, it's interesting in the way that God works things, trials actually are the vehicles through which mercy is conveyed. In the book of Hebrews, it says this about Jesus and his trials. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Maybe I should have read the broader context a little bit. It's talking about the trials that he went through, all the deprivations, all the stuff that he went through that made him a merciful high priest. Mercies, we learn mercy through trials. Obviously, in most trials, we're angry with them. They're painful. They're awkward. We don't want to talk about them. We want them to be done immediately, if not sooner. And so we're angry at trials. And what do we want to do? We want to lash out. But God so ordains and so manipulates the trial in your life in such a way that he doesn't allow you to do that without it getting worse. And so you learn by a process of discipline to allow God to have its, allow God to use a trial to have its full effect in you and for you not to step out of it, for you not to get angry with God about it, for you to not get angry with your wife or husband about it, for you to become meek and tender to the touch of God under it. And therefore he teaches you not to exert judgment upon people who create 
hassle and pain and stress for you, but mercy instead. What a paradox. The blessed person, the spiritually successful person, wants then mercy based on one thing and one thing only, not because they themselves have already been merciful to other people, but because God himself is in fact merciful. This is faith. Self-righteousness says, well, I, I, I'm worthy of mercy. I've been pretty merciful to people. I, I could have cut that guy off, but I didn't. I'd, but faith says, I've done nothing to earn mercy. In fact, I can't earn something like mercy. Therefore, it's got to come solely from God for his own good, pleasurable reasons. So... That's the reality, and that's kind of where the, the paradox in the condition, blessed are, or spiritually successful, are the people who shall receive mercy, which sounds so strange. It should be the miserable people who receive mercy, but no, it's the spiritually successful people shall receive mercy because they aren't looking at themselves for the reasons for why they would receive mercy. Faith looks away from self, okay? Faith looks away from self and to the promise of God. We actually sang about it earlier. Faith, when you're looking to find salvation in Jesus Christ, faith looks away from self and looks to the cross to discover what God was doing in Jesus Christ. Looks away from self and looks at what God has done and looks at his promises. Okay, so that's the second category. The third category uh, that we'll look at, the third heading, if you want to look at it that way, is the group. And in verse 7, the group is called the merciful. And this actually introduces us now to our third paradox of this short little beatitude. Again, read verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. That's our group, for they shall receive mercy. And again, that merciful is in the plural. So this is talking about a group of people, just like all the other groups through all the beatitudes are all in the plural. This is a blessed are this group who are described as merciful. And so I want to tell you, this verse actually is a quid pro quo. And you're all going, thanks, that wasn't very helpful. A quid pro quo is an arrangement whereby you scratch my back and I scratch yours. It's pretty simple, right? Take it out of Latin, put it into layman's terms. It's just you do what I want and I'll do what you want. It's kind of the way the world works, right? And the reality is, this actually is a quid pro quo. It is the merciful, the ones who are merciful, who do receive mercy. But that makes it so hard to understand because you can't earn or qualify for mercy. (laughs) One thing this tells us is this verse is not talking about eternal mercy, eternal salvation the eternal mercy of salvation. That is not what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about getting into heaven. The reality is is that nobody receives mercy for having shown mercy to someone else in salvation. They don't get salvation. Salvation is not by works. Salvation is not by good attitudes. Salvation is not by a condition of your heart. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It is a sheer gift. 
that you can claim, that you can exert faith in and believe in and thereby possess and be regenerated in your spirit. But you can't earn God's eternal mercy by first being merciful. That blows away everything about God and makes salvation now only available to those who are good enough for it. No, that's not what he's talking about. In fact, Titus 3.5 tells us that God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Well, that would answer that right there. So God had mercy on you, Christian, but not because you first had mercy on him, but because you were so needy. You see, that's where the eternal perspective of this verse is so wrong. If, if you get eternal salvation by first being merciful, well, then you first have to be merciful to God. Because if God's going to give you himself and eternity, you've got to first be merciful to God. But that makes no sense whatsoever. You can't be merciful to God. What, has he done something wrong? Is there a problem in him that he needs your mercy? No. I mean, there's, a, there's actually people who teach that. You remember that book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People? And you still have it around, by the way. It's still kind of a common teaching. Hopefully never from this pulpit. <laughs> but, the, but the idea, and it's so common today that God kind of needs your forgiveness. He, he kind of needs your patience. He's doing the best he can with a bad situation, okay? So all of that lame, bring God down to the place of pity and sorrow theology is not what this is talking about at all. God had mercy on you because he had mercy on you, just because you were so needy. And, and so, please understand, this verse, like all the other Beatitudes, is talking about the blessed life here and now. This isn't talking about the future of eternity and the glories of eternity. This is a roadmap for the blessed life now, <clears throat> which puts us right back into the Beatitude, because this verse is teaching that you get what you give. If you're merciful, you get mercy. But since you can't earn mercy, then if you do receive mercy, it's not because you earned it. No, actually, then if you, er, if you receive mercy, the only reason you received it is because God had mercy upon you. God saw you were needy. God had pity upon you in your condition and therefore made you merciful. We would understand this through the new birth. God had mercy on you. and Through the new birth, put a new heart within you. That was the very nature of his own beloved son. You think about how he reacted to the kind of men who deserved judgment for the way they treated him. So meek, so merciful, so forgiving, so gracious. So this is why you get mercy, not because you earn it, because God decided to give it to you, because he saw how, merciful, how, how lacking you were, how desperately poor you were. So he gave you something kindly. He gave you a new heart that wants to be merciful. Now let's dig down into the language. I want to show you this a little bit. For the first time in verse 7, Jesus changes something up. The word merciful is an adjective. That's the first time. Every other time in all of the Beatitudes thus far, it has been a verb. A verb is, it kind of would have signaled to everybody listening, whoa, 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 this is a major change here. This is then describing people who aren't doing action verbs of mercy, giving mercies and 
figuring out how to do things of mercy. No, it's describing who these people are. They are merciful. The adjective characterizes what already exists. Therefore, these are people who have already been made merciful by God's work in their life in salvation. And as a result, then, the merciful people who are described in this verse can't demand mercy from anyone. That wouldn't be mercy. That would be earning just rewards. That would be them making a judgment. If you look at somebody else and you, and you demand from your wife or you demand from your husband or you demand from your boss or you demand from those who work under you or anybody else in your family, anybody else in life, you demand of them mercy and all of us do it, you're not being merciful. You're just being actually judgmental. The reality is is that a merciful person graciously demands nothing. Nothing. When harshly judged, they respond with mercy. When treated mercifully, they respond with mercy. Mercy is the power to give compassion and love to those who actually deserve judgment for their sins. But mercy is better than judgment. Mercy is stronger than judgment. Mercy is the reason for why God sent Christ into the world. Mercy is the reason for why God has redeemed you and made you a vessel of mercy. Demanding people are judgmental people. They demand far more from others than they do from themselves. The judgmental person is always weighing everybody else in his or her personal scales of judgment. Every word, every action that they do is up for evaluation. Weighed on some scale of self-developed judgment. The merciful instead graciously demand nothing. The merciful group sees how ugly such scales of self-designed righteousness and whether people my friends, my family are living up to my expectation of how I ought to be treated are repugnant, aberrant, vile, and a shame to Christ. Mercy is pity for all of those who have fallen in Adam. People are broken by sin. They're rude. They're arrogant. They're self-willed. They're led by the nose, by cruel gods of this world into all kinds of manner of cruelty. But mercy is a forgiving spirit toward the sinner that embraces both a kindly feeling toward them and even a kindly act. Wow. This attitude gets really deep. It exposes our heart as not so good, not such a good place. It's a good thing God had mercy. What other reason would he have had to have a relationship with us? You remember uh, the prodigal son He demands the inheritance from his dad. And his dad, 
for a reason I really don't understand, probably doing with the way culture was back then, gives the son his half of the inheritance, and the bonehead kid, oh, that's so judgmental. The kid goes off and spends it all on prostitutes and food and partying and finally comes to an end of himself, right? You know the story. Eating the food the pigs have to eat. Finally realizes, bloom, little light bulb goes out. Hey, man, the very servants in my father's house are living better than I am. And so he goes back with his dad, and he listen to this. He graciously demands nothing. And he says to, my dad, he says to his dad, when he finally makes it back, look, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Only make me as one of your hired servants. That was graciously demanding nothing. And of course, you know the great story, the father filled with mercy, just bowels of mercy, it all comes out. Get the ring, get the fatted calf, this son of mine who was dead is now alive. Heart of the father, part of God. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Well, that, that, that's, that's a good place. You're graciously recognizing your own shortcomings and graciously recognizing how merciful, how good God is. You do with me as you wish. In the Old Testament, a lame man whose legs do not work, his name is Mephibosheth, has been slandered by his slave Ziba before David the king. Mephibosheth graciously demands nothing from the king who ends up in the story graciously showing mercy to all. The only person who can live out this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, is the child of God, the person who has been personally forgiven by God. Now, if I have personally experienced the forgiveness and the mercy of God, my attitude toward everybody else must be completely and entirely changed. Every other living person. I must now see all men who, like me, fell in Adam. And I need to see them with a Christian eye, with an eye of faith. They're all in need of redemption. And apart from that, they will be who they will be. I know the people of this world. You know the people of this world are spiritual dupes. No matter how amazing they are in the flesh. And a lot of them are really amazing in the flesh. But even with all kinds of other people, I am not called to dislike anybody, even if they voted on the other side of the ticket. I'm not called to dislike anybody. I will certainly not be approving of deeds of sin and those kind of things that are against and contrary to God's law, but I'm not called to be on a crusade against the people of this world, exposing their sins in some pharisaical, misguided attempt at preserving righteousness in the culture? Come on. When was there ever righteousness in our culture? It's not real. I feel sorry for them. I feel pity for them. Everybody who doesn't have Christ, how sad, how empty. I have pity for them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. A person without mercy can't forgive, but a person who is driven by mercy can't help but to forgive. 
Let me wrap it up and we'll take the Lord's Supper. The reason why God allowed the fall was to put on display his mercy. In the Bible, he is called the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. God extends mercy to all men and to all who come to him, he extends eternal mercy. God has said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And I ask you, why not take him up on that? He has pledged it. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Why not take him up on his pledge? Why not exert faith this morning, beloved, in verse 7? I shall receive mercy, for this comes by such a kind and merciful God. He turns no one away who seeks for him. And even the people of this world who don't seek for him, he lavishes upon them day after day so many wonderful benefits of life, does he not? It's just amazing. He gives to all an undeserved surplus of food, health, life, sunshine, indiscriminately. Every day, until this world is wrapped up as a mantle and flipped away, every day in this world is a showcase of mercy in the midst of a world that deserves judgment. Now you and I, beloved, are called and empowered to do the same. Let's pray, and gentlemen, if you would come up. Heavenly Father, when we think about something that is contrary to the nature of our own spirit, like mercy, we're always caught short. We call to Thee then for strengthening of the motives within to be merciful. I would suspect that in each and every person's life in this room, there is one or two or more people who are taunting, mean-spirited, cold, who every time they are showed mercy only use it for their own personal purposes and trample upon it. And yet you promised that the merciful shall receive mercy. So strengthen our faith. Teach us to walk by faith. Everything that you have ordained for our lives, you've done in such a way as to display the very truth that is written across the heavens. They shall receive mercy. It's in your great name we pray.